that. Father, um, as you know, God, I'm so thrilled that uh, North Bible Church has come into their own, that you've blessed them and graced them with quality, godly leadership and a body of Christ that is clearly passionate, loving, faithful, and uh, true to your word. And so, Father, as they have started off so well, God, our humble prayer would be that you would continue to have your hand upon them, bless them, fill them with your spirit in a unique and special way, and that, God, as you do that, continue to use them. Let Lord use them to reach families and others in North Scottsdale with the life-saving message of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray a hedge of protection around them. We pray, Lord, your provision upon them. And, uh, Lord, we just pray that as this has started off so well, that, God, you would continue to be pleased and have your hand upon North Bible Church. And God may, too, they know that they have a, a sending congregation here that loves them, that is for them and stands ready to continue to support them in the days, months, and years ahead. Father, I pray as we turn to your word now, as we're talking, uh, wrapping up this series on grace in the family, that God, you might speak to our hearts. May your word certainly not return void, but may it do its work in our hearts and minds as we talk about this all-important subject of singleness. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned in my prayer, we're uh, wrapping up our grace series today on family, and we're talking about being single, being single. And the reality is, is that many of us here today don't really know what it's like to be single. We really don't. I mean, we think we do, and that's part of the problem, because we were born single, we went through adolescence single, thankfully, and we might have been single for a little bit of time in our 20s or what have you, but then we got married, and maybe there was a time we went through a marital breakdown and were single for a very short period, but the reality is, is that most of us today here have never really been single for all that long period of time, and yet we think that we get singleness because of our brief experiences with it. We remember back to our relatively brief life, ep life episodes of singleness, whether as an adolescent or early adult, and we think that we get it. We think that we identify. But I think the place that we need to start this morning is we need to recognize if we're ever going to have cogent, intelligent conversation with the singles in our congregation, in our community, is that we really don't know what it's like to be single. I mean, if you're not convinced, ask yourself, do you really know what it's like to be widowed after 10, 20, 30, 40, or even 50 years of marriage? Unless you're in that predicament, you don't know what it's like. We really don't know what it's like to be divorced and not remarried, thinking that it would never happen to us, only to now find ourselves in this new season of life, in many ways thinking we're back to square one. And certainly, many of us don't know what it's like to never be married. And now to find ourselves in our 30s, 40s, and 50s, maybe even wondering why. And short, folks, I need to see this. Most all of us here who are married today really don't get what it's like to have to go it alone in this world, whether it's going it alone because of the death of a spouse or the dissolution of a marriage or because we never found our soulmate in the first place. We don't get the unique struggles of loneliness, discouragement, confusion. In fact, many of us don't even get what it's like for a single to have to come to an eight-week series on the family. And we think, well, isn't this great? And I've heard from some of our singles before this series in which they said, Jamie, it's not going to be great. It's going to be really hard for me to come and hear people talk about parenting and marriage and divorce and grandparenting and all of that. And I get it. That's difficult. 
I hope we can start to get this. And so we're here today to remedy this somewhat. And one of the most powerful things that we need to begin with is that many of us need to realize that though we might not get singleness, and we're going to try to remedy that today, God does. That God and his word do understand singleness. They do get what it's like to be single. God, because he made us, but his word, because as I'm going to show you right now, because there's an awful lot of single people in the Bible. I mean, I don't know if you ever really thought about it like this or not, folks, but think of all the people in the Bible who had a life of singleness, who had to go it alone. There's a lot of them, like Jesus, most of the disciples, Paul the Apostle, Daniel, Jeremiah, Elijah, and then you have women like Naomi, Miriam, Moses' sister, Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sister, and most likely Mary Magdalene, and certainly Mary the mother of Jesus later on in her life. And so don't miss this. Some of the most central figures in the Bible, I mean, you can't get more central than Jesus, Mary, and Paul the Apostle live lives of singleness. And it's because of this that the Bible has a lot to say on this subject. And so here's what I want to do as we wrap up this series on the family today. I want us to spend the remainder of our time this morning doing two things. One, helping us all try to have a deeper and more compassionate understanding of this idea of singleness. I want to do what I call an anatomy of singleness, where I ask and answer a few questions to help us more fully understand what the Bible says when people go it alone. And then the second thing I want to do is share some principles on singleness here this morning. Principles that though they're going to be directed towards singles are going to be something all of us can embrace together to try to breed some type of unity. So first, the anatomy of singleness. Three questions we need to ask and answer to more fully get when people are going it alone. And the first question is this, why are some people single and others not? Let's start real simple, shall we? Why are some people single and others not? And I know to some of you, you're thinking that this is an overly simple or even silly question to ask. I would submit to you that it's really not. In fact, it's a question that the Bible takes very seriously as it gives us a well-thought-out, cogent answer from God as to what singleness is about and why some people find themselves single. And the answer to this question of long-seasoned singleness is basically this, that it boils down to either circumstances and or calling. Those are the two words you need to latch on to, circumstances and or calling. In other words, check this out, individuals find themselves single because of circumstances, whether good or bad, that have led them to a single place, or the Bible affirms that they might have a calling based on a giftedness that God has given them to a life of singleness. And so singleness from God's vantage point almost always sources back to either circumstances or to calling. And so check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, has Paul the apostle, who we already established as single, speaking and saying this. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, meaning single, but each one has his own, here it is, gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so don't miss this. You got Paul the Apostle talking about his own singleness, and I don't know if you caught it here, but he refers to it as a gift from God, a blessing, a strength, a calling, something that he is thankful for in that he sees it as a gift that's been given to him, an ability that he finds great contentment in. 
And what you need to know, folks, is that some people have this calling, and it's not just Roman Catholic priests. I mean, when we think of the gift of singleness to people who've been gifted to be single, I'm telling you, the average American thinks, yeah, I got a priest friend who's like that. And so we tend to think that it's only priests or nuns that have the gift of singleness. It's not true. I mean, John Stott, the great British author and pastor, has written candidly about his singleness calling. So did C.S. Lewis much of his adult life. Corey Ten Boom, the great Dutch Christian writer and survivor of a Nazi concentration camp, never married and saw it as a gift for the longest time. In her 20s and 30s, the popular singer today, Rebecca St. James, talked about her singleness as a gift from God. And it's only recently, I think this month, that she's now getting married. But before that, she championed the idea of singleness and chastity. Please see, folks, for some, singleness is a gift. It's a calling that God gives. But then as you're chewing on that, for another biblical perspective, check out Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, as it talks about various seasons of life and helps us understand uh, singleness from a circumstantial standpoint. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes 3. It says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. And so isn't it interesting here, in this passage, instead of referring to gifts that we get in life, it refers to the fact that there's different seasons or machinations, different episodes of life. Whether it's an episode of death or an episode of being born or an episode of plucking up or an episode of planting, you can read on and on to all the different seasons of life. In other words, it's making clear that things come and go in life. Even people come and go, whether through death or separation or even taking a long time to find that right person, for everything there is a season. And so if I'm reading this right, this would include singleness. And in this context, singleness is not a lifelong calling or even a gift, but it's a season. Maybe even a long and protracted season, but a season nonetheless that some people go through, a circumstantial aspect of life that they go through that is certainly under the sovereignty of Almighty God. And so whether it's my friend Ron, who went through a season of singleness recently due to the loss of his wife, but is now engaged to be married as the Lord has brought a new woman into his life, or my friend Doug in Chicago, who remained single till he was well into his 40s, but then the Lord lifted up Vicki and he's now happily married to her. Or whether it's my friend Larry, who went through a bitter divorce against his own will, and hence through countless years of being single, that now has again found a woman that God has lifted up for him. There are seasons of singleness, a time for every matter under heaven. And what you need to see is that this, this is vastly different from a calling or a gift. So there's two biblical reasons that people find themselves in a single place, circumstances and or calling. Now, once you understand this first part of an anatomy of singleness, it obviously leads to a second question in trying to understand singleness from a biblical perspective, and that is, how does a person know then if his or her singleness is a circumstance or a calling? That's kind of the $10 question, isn't it? So, so once you get the circumstance versus calling thing, how do you know if you're a single person, whether you're in a seasonal circumstance of singleness or whether this is a lifelong calling? 
And believe it or not, folks, it's not a difficult question to answer, though a lot of people tend to miss it or make it too complicated. And the answer to how a person knows if his singleness is circumstantial or a gift almost always boils down to one word and concept. Look up here on the screen, and it's contentedness. Contentedness. I'm telling you, this is biblical through and through. It almost always boils down to contentedness. In other words, commensurate with a gift or calling to a life of singleness is an eventual contentedness on a relational, spiritual, emotional, even sexual level that God gives with that calling. And the opposite then is also true. That a lack of peace about singleness, along with a corollary desire for marital companionship, is usually a sign that this is circumstantial and not a lifelong calling or a gift. And so check this out. Paul the Apostle goes on to say, right on the coattails of the verse we just looked at in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, this in verses 8 through 9, as he's still talking about singleness. He says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, it's interesting, folks. Though this passage here is obviously talking about sexuality when it mentions self-control and burning with passion thus telling us that sexual contentedness is a barometer for a potential calling to singleness. I believe, however, that when you understand the broader context of contentment in general in the New Testament, that it becomes a grid as well for a single person to understand whether he or she has a calling or a circumstance when it comes to their singleness. So what am I talking about? Look up here on the screen and let me string together some passages on contentment and see if you see what I see here. And talking about life in general, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 6, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. And then in talking about his life calling to the ministry, uh, look at what he says in Philippians 4. 4.11, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There's that word again. And then Jesus, in talking about celibacy in Matthew 19, says this. He says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. The implication being that contentment is core to one's life calling of singleness or not. And so add all this up, folks. What the New Testament seems to make clear is that those who are called to a particular lot in life as they follow God are eventually giving a, given a contentment that rides tandem with the calling that God has put on their life. And so contentment becomes not just a byproduct of your calling, but it's a barometer, a marker, if you will, of your calling as well. And I think this applies to singleness as well. That if one is called to a life of God-devoted singleness, if he or she has been gifted in a 1 Corinthians 7-7 sort of way, then it only makes sense that God would eventually give a corresponding contentment that would allow him or her to live out the calling that he or she has received. But in the absence of that contentment, then I would suggest to you that your singleness is circumstantial, that God still has something else for you. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, but Jamie, what if I've been called or gifted with singleness, but I don't really want it? In other words, what if God has called me to a life that I hate? I get that question quite often. I mean, people talk about it in a missionary context. They're like going, oh, please, I don't want to be open to missions because I don't want to go to Africa and float down the Nile. 
And they say the same thing about singleness. It's like I don't want to be open to the fact that God might have gifted me to be singleness because I hate that and I don't want a life like that. What do I do then? And it's interesting. I'm not going to suggest that that can never happen because I'm sure God sometimes asks us to do things that we don't want to do. But it seems to me that this question, folks, misses the point that I'm trying to make. And that is the whole point that God giving eventual contentment to those that he has called to a particular lifestyle means that if you hate what you're being called to, then the question whether or not you're really called to it, right? I mean, think about it this way. I'm called to the ministry. I am. When I was 22 years old, God clearly put a call on my life to devote my life to the idea of being a pastor or a minister. And I got to tell you, on my worst days here, and I have them sometimes, on my worst days here, I drive home and I ask myself that gut honest question, would I want to do anything else? And you know what the answer always is when I ask that question? No. Even on my worst days, this is what I'm called to, and I'd rather do nothing else. Why does it work that way? Because God has placed a desire in me that's commensurate with the calling that he's given me. And I think that's a biblical pattern. And I think that fits singleness as well. That if God has gifted somebody to a life of singleness, then certainly over time he's going to give that person an eventual desire and a, and a contentment commensurate with that calling. It's interesting, I had a gal come up to me after the last service, and she affirmed that in her own experience. She said, you know, I didn't get married until well into my 40s, and up until two years before I got married, God gave me great contentment with my lot in life. And she said, then I got married, now my husband's passed on, and she said, I have that contentment once again. And I thought that's exactly how it works, that, that if God has called you to a certain lot in life, He's good. He's gracious. The psalm says he gives us the desires of our heart. So he's going to give you a contentment that rides tandem with the calling. But outside of that contentment, then it might be just or probably just be circumstantial. So God will give you desire and a peace commensurate with your calling. That's how you know whether it's circumstantial or whether it's a gift. Now, we're running out of time fast, and I want to share with you a couple of principles of singleness before we go here this morning. But more quickly, I want to ask one last question in this anatomy of singleness, just so that we can all fully understand or more fully understand what's going on in the single scene. And it's a very important question for you and I in our culture today, and it's simply this, why are there seemingly more singles today than in previous generations? You ever wondered that? Why are there seemingly more singles today than it seems like it was maybe a generation or two ago? And by the way, just watching the television will tell you this. You didn't see all that many singles on Leave it to Beaver, right? I mean, on Little House on the Prairie, I don't remember seeing all that many singles. On Gilligan's Island, there was a lot of singles, but there was an obvious reason for that, right? And so there you had a lot of singles. But, but look at today's TV shows, and you'll see shows like Full House to Two and a Half Men to Sex in the City, or one that my wife and I watch, NCIS. Isn't it interesting? On NCIS, almost all the main characters are single. They're adults well into their 20s and 30s, but they're still single. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is that just Hollywood? Or might there be more singles now in the 21st century in American culture than there was before? And the answer is clear, if not a little surprising, and that is that there are now more singles by both volume and percentage in the United States than any other time in the recorded history 
of our country. It's true. In fact, check this out. This will say it all. In January of 2007, the New York Times did a story in which they highlighted an analysis of the most recent census data combined with the most recent general population survey in which they found that in the year 2005, 51% of adult women in America were living without a spouse. 51%. This was the first time in the recorded history of America that married couples were a minority in our country. This 51% figure was up from 35% in 1950, which means that only one in three people were single, women were single in 1950. It was up from 49% in the year 2000. We tipped the scales in the year 2005. And it's a staggering social trend. And you got to ask yourself, why is this happening? What's going on? Look up here on the screen. Three reasons why this has come about. Everybody agrees on this. First is that people are pushing off getting married to later and later in life. We all know this. Or they're living together before they get married. Second reason is that medical advances have increased life expectancy for all of us. But women still outpace men or outlive men. And so we have a lot more widows now because people are living longer than ever before. And the third reason is, is that the divorce rate, though it has leveled off, is still very high in our country. Don't ever be fooled by that. And as a result of that, we have a lot of single parents who, when their kids move out, are going to be single once again. And so here's a thought that hit me this week, folks. And that is that when you combine this with the biblical understanding that we just looked at that distinguishes between calling and circumstances you realize that we are now in a country in which millions of people are single, not most likely due to a unique calling, but due to life circumstances that are more about their personal choice or just following what culture says about marriage and divorce. Isn't that interesting? Our culture has tipped the scales, and we have a lot of circumstantially single people. You have many of them in your lives. We have many of them in our church. And the key question many of them are asking is, what does God have for me now? And what's next for my life? I mean, I don't think I'm being called to this life. So what is it that God wants for me? What does he want me to do? And I think that's a great question. So more to the point, the question I want us to wrap up with this morning is what should the response of a single person be today to his or her singleness? What principles can and should a single person live by that will help them follow what God has for them next? And though there'd be some in the church today to be quick to say to those who are circumstantially single, get married, I don't think that that's the right answer to give right out of the chute, not at all. Because as you and I both know, marriage is not something to rush into just because of cultural pressure or because you're getting on in years or even because of loneliness. No, that's going to lead to just more trouble if those are your reasons. I think it's obvious that circumstantially single people want to get married. And by family members and friends just reminding them of that, it just rubs salt in the wound. I think it's actually cruel at the end of the day. They know that. But there are a couple of very important first steps that come way before the call to get married or remarried that we all need to affirm for the single person a couple of key principles of grace that God gives us in his word to single people. And this is what I want to end with here this morning. And so here's the first one. These are principles for going alone. And the first one is to use your circumstances and or calling to develop a unique walk with God. 
And the key word there, and I don't mean this tritely at all, is a unique walk with God. And so once again, look at how the quintessential single in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, would go on to say this in the chapter that we're looking at this morning. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 to 35. He's speaking about singleness still, and he says this. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, track what's going on here, folks. It's very interesting what Paul the Apostle does here. He uses that word, you noticed it, anxiety, five times in these short four verses. Five times he repeats the word anxiety. And I would suggest to you that he's using it in a dual sense, one positive and one negative. To the single people, he say, or to the married people, he's saying you have anxieties about life in a negative sense because your devotion is divided. You have a spouse to please, you've got kids, you've got provision and all these other things going on in your life. And so, yeah, you know the Lord and you trust him and you make him first in your life, but let's face it, you've got divided interests and you're anxious about that. But then he switch hits with this word and uses it in a different way for single people. He says, you have anxieties only about the Lord. Your main concern or care, I think that's how the NASB translates that word anxiety, concern or care, your main concern is about how to please God, how to uniquely walk with him. And as he says there at the end, your interests are not divided. And so please see this, folks. Paul's basic point is that singleness is an opportunity to know God in a unique and undistracted way, quite frankly, in a way that married people will never know. I mean, talk about finding grace in singleness. God is saying that singleness is an opportunity to draw close to him, to experience his movement and grace in your life in a way that the rest of us will only salivate after. And all I can tell you, folks, is that I've seen this in action as a pastor so many times that I do begin to salivate after this. When I hear single people talk to me about some of the things that God has done in their lives, even circumstantially single people that are just going through this for a season, I sit there and go, whoa, only God could do that. I don't know if you remember this, but we showed you a video a couple years ago of the head of our security team here at our church, Maddie. And Maddie used to be on the Phoenix Police Department. I think he was a sharpshooter or SWAT or something like that. Don't mess with him. And, uh, and, and he's now retired. He retired early. And uh, toward the close to his retirement, his wife Susan got cancer and tragically died at a very, very young age. And that was a huge deal, obviously, for Maddie. I mean, Susan was the love of his life. He cared deeply for her. I mean, she's the one who led him to the Lord. But you know, before Susan died, he kind of lived what we might call a casual Christian life, maybe like some of you do. He was here every Sunday. He, he sat in a pew. He sang a few songs. He listened to a good sermon. But then it was kind of on with his own life at that time, kind of doing his own thing. And one of the things that he shared with us in this video is that as tragic as the loss of his wife was and is, that the Lord surprised him during the loss of his wife Susan by moving in his life and calling him closer to himself in a way that Maddie never thought possible. 
I mean, he said during that time of very lonely circumstantial singleness that Maddie is still in, he said God ignited his spiritual life in a way that he never thought could happen. And folks, if I had a dime for every time I heard a story like that, I'd be a rich man. In fact, I had two or three people just come up to me after the last service alone saying, Jamie, I could tell you the same story of how God ignited my singleness in a unique way to draw me closer to himself. It's fascinating, the book of Hosea, when Israel was going through a very single time in their life because of their own sin and straying from God, he gives them this great hopeful promise. Just listen to these words, Hosea 2, 19 and 20. And if this doesn't move you, I got nothing else. God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Talk about grace. God wants to use lonely times in our lives, even a calling like singleness in our lives, to draw us closer to himself. Single, draw close to him. You'll be glad that you did. Now, we got just a few minutes left, and there's a second principle from God's Word that it gives as well. And i got to tell you, I almost didn't want to share this principle because I know the backlash that this creates among some singles here, and we'll talk about it right now, but let me throw the principle out, and then you can kill me later. The principle is this, and that is single, you need to lean richly on the body of Christ. You need to lean richly on the body of Christ. Now, why am I afraid to give that? I have said this publicly before in the past that singles need to draw close to the body of Christ, and I've heard once, I've heard a thousand times this response, you've got to be kidding me, Jamie. Lean richly on the body of Christ? I mean, I feel out of place with all these married people as it is. It's lonely enough as it is in church, and believe me, you already admitted that they don't understand, and they already treat me differently, so why rub salt in the room and lean richly on the body of Christ? And folks, i got to tell you, when I hear single people say that to me, it's one of the few times that I'm speechless because I tend to agree with them. I, I tend to see how the rest of us treat single people in the church, especially in a conservative church that's really into the family, which we should be. I tend to watch how the church tends to treat single people, and I think to myself, you know, if I was single, I'd probably have the same attitude. And so one of the things that I want to wrap up with here this morning is to give a call to the church, something that we need to hear, and that is that we need to stop viewing singleness as some totally different spiritual status, even a diminished status, and begin viewing it as the Bible does, as Jesus and Paul did, and that is it is a God-honoring circumstance or calling that God has sovereignly given to some very spiritually mature people in the body of Christ. If you don't believe me, listen now, Lori Smith, author of the book, The Single Truth, challenging the misconceptions of singleness with God's consuming truth, says it. This is great. Look up here on the screen. She says, the Christian culture needs to change the way it views singleness, to see it as a God-given opportunity and a good gift for the time it's given, whether that's five years out of college or 20 she says we need to view single Christians as complete Christians, as mature Christians, as people God can use in our lives and in our congregations in powerful ways. And folks, I think she's right. We're the body of Christ. Listen, each and every one of us, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you take him seriously at all, you count and we're all fully, equally a part of the body of Christ. And as I was thinking about that this week, I thought, you know, 
I can't even imagine what would happen if Jesus, Mary, or Elijah, or Paul the Apostle were in Scottsdale Bible Church today, how they might feel as a single person. I mean, can you imagine how some of us might treat Paul the Apostle? You know, he's kind of single, and it's a life calling, and you know, what's wrong with him? That's kind of weird. And if I know Paul the Apostle, and you get to know him through his 13 letters he's written, my guess is he'd have some words to say to you if you treated him like that. My guess is if you treated Paul the Apostle as a second-class citizen because he's a single man, he'd be right in your face. He'd be saying, guess what? I got a holy calling. I see God moving my life in the way that you marry people never will. Nah, nah, nah. That's in the margins. I mean, that's what Paul would say. I think the reality is, is that many of us need to grow up in the body of Christ and start to realize that singleness is a huge part, not of just our culture, but a part of our church. And it's high time that we embrace the full body of Christ. You know, I, I fall into this trap on a regular basis, folks. There was a time recently, I, I had a friend of mine recently who lost his wife at way too young of an age. She was 49, he's 51. And he's in this church here and he's a leader. And I was in a meeting recently and we were talking about some of the uh, next leaders for this particular leadership team that we were uh, looking to, to fill. And my friend's name came up. And I remember saying to the team of people who are looking to add more leaders to this team, I said, you know, I, I don't think you want to include his name on it because, you know, he's recently single, he's recently widowed, and I just think it might be too much for him. And so they let it die. Now, I don't know if you've ever happened to this, but once in a while the Holy Spirit tends to speak to our hearts and convict us when we do stupid things. And as I was driving home that day thinking how much I love Scottsdale Bible and I was evaluating my day, the Holy Spirit very clearly spoke to my heart and the Spirit said this. He said, since when did you start making decisions for fully devoted followers of Christ who are 51 years old? Since when did you see it as your role to say so-and-so should or should not be on a particular leadership team? And I thought to myself, boy, was that just a dumb thing to say. And so I immediately called up the guy who was heading up this leadership team, and I said, Nick's what I said earlier. I said, we need to include this guy's name on it and let him decide whether or not the Lord's calling him at this season to be involved in this leadership role or not. When I got with him later on, I shared with him that story, my friend who's 51, and he kind of smiled and he said, thank you. He said, thank you that you caught that. And he said, because, you know, I, I think I might be ready even though it's been fairly recent, to, to be involved in the church. I need my church. This is my church. And the thing I worry about now as a single guy is that I'm going to lose connection in my church with all these married people that I know so well. Do you see how that works? Even your pastor has to repent of that stinking mindset that we tend to get in our culture today. And so let's all repent together when it comes to how we view the singles around us. And let me lead us with a, or leave us with a verse today that I think applies to singles, married, to all of us when it comes to the challenge we have as the body of Christ. And we saw this even in the new members that we brought in earlier. It's Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. It says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day, the day of Christ drawing near. What a call to each and every one of us to be a fully participating part of the body of Christ, to love him, to love each other, singled, married, singled again, widowed. We're all in this together, folks. Let's act and function like that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word once again is not silent on topics that not just hit our culture, but certainly hit our everyday lives as followers of Jesus as well. 
And Father, I pray that as we've just scratched the surface of this idea of singleness, which your word talks so much about, that God, you might help some of us, beginning with me, uh, just understand more deeply and relevantly what you say about singleness. God, I thank you that you're in such awesome sovereign control that there are circumstances and callings that singleness fall under. I thank you, God, that you've given us a level of contentedness in our walk with you that can help us discern what calling or not calling we have in life. I thank you, God, that you've given us principles like the fact that we can know you and follow you and trust you, and even more so, Lord, for those who are going it alone now in a unique way. And God, we pray that you bless them as such. God, we think of our single brothers and sisters in our church right now, and God, forgive us if we've ever given a message to them that somehow they're not a fully, fully a part of the body of Christ here. May they know that not only you love them, but that we love them too. And that, Lord, we stand ready to be the body of Christ together as we move forward at Scottsdale Bible Church. God, thank you that you've blessed us as a church. I pray, God, you continue to keep us humble, serving, focused on Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, and in whose name we pray. We all say together, amen. See you next Sunday. It's Palm Sunday. God bless you.